news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to my show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Today's guest holds an MFA in writing from Vermont College. She's the author of two novels, All the Things We Never Knew, and the acclaimed novel, Calling My Name, which was a 2018 Penn America Literary Award finalist and a 2018 SCBWI Golden Kite finalist. She lives in Houston, Texas. It's my pleasure to welcome Liara Tamani. Liara, it's so lovely to to see you today and get to chat with you because I've been following your career since 2017 when your first novel came out and I've kind of been stalking you on social media. Uh, and so this is a wonderful excuse for us to get to chat. Thank you for taking the time out. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here and to chat with you. Your focus is YA, so young adult. And now when I was a teen and I'm really dating myself here, uh, all I had to read as a teenager were kind of these sweet dreams novels or these sweet valley high and they were just romance based there was hardly any diversity there weren't many serious themes tackled etc and so I came to YA as an adult and I was quite surprised 
to discover that I loved this genre and that there were heavy, heavy themes explored and that as an adult, I could learn so much from these books. And I wished so much that I had had these books available to me as a teenager. And here are some quotes that you've given in interviews that I found extremely inspiring. You wrote, I wanted to encourage teens to be more curious because it can lead to beautiful, unexpected things. You wrote, even when things seem to be going terribly in the world or in their lives, I want teens to remember to look to the blue sky for peace, to listen to the birds and pay attention to the trees. Simple things, but they can be transcendent. And and this one was so profound. You said, your parents' issues are not yours. It's good to empathize, but it's also okay to recognize when your parents are wrong and choose to do better for yourself. And lastly, you said, I want them to recognize their own power. Here, you were talking about teens and to take charge of creating their own destinies. So hugely powerful and inspiring words about about your own work. So let's talk about those themes and how they relate to your work. Yeah, I am a huge kind of believer in looking out for your future self. (laughs) And it's something that uh, it's like I want to inspire or at least have kids think about and to know that, you know, they have power over their futures, that every day when they wake up, every little thing they do adds up and then the days add up and then they add up to weeks and then all the things that you've done in those days and done in those weeks and done in those months and done in those years, they really amount to the life that you have. And yeah, there are plenty of bad things happening in the world um, and the world is not fair and everybody doesn't get the same same shot. Everybody doesn't get the same chances. Everybody doesn't get the same opportunity. But at the same time, you know, we have to encourage children to dream and we have to encourage children to go after their dreams because they're not going to go, then you can't reach a dream that you're not uh, reaching for. And we have to, you know, emphasize these things. I think that people, they discount the lives of teenagers and a lot of people don't take them seriously, you know, seriously as human beings, but they are living, breathing human beings. They are people and they are shaping their futures. Um, but even in their daily lives, they're so much that they have to encounter and that they have to deal with. You know, obviously they're still living at home with their parents and they are taking that in, whatever that is. And we all know how much dysfunction there is in the world. And so, you know, I think it's important to say, you know, along with the romance and all the good and the sweet, it's like, you don't want to be preaching at them because they're going to be like, eh, I don't want to hear that either. You know what I'm saying? But while we're telling these stories and while we're entertaining them, I want to throw in a little bit of knowledge <laughs> in that, you know, because a lot, a lot, it's important for a lot of kids to hear that. You know, a lot of kids are, are looking because when you're a teenager, especially you've seen some of the world and some of what you know goes on at home might have felt normal for a long time and might still feel normal but the more you get out into the world and see you might recognize hey this is not normal you know or this is not good this thing that my mom does or this thing that my dad does or these things this thing that my parents do and it's okay for kids to start recognizing that in their parents and, and choose different for themselves for sure and so all the little things in nature you know I just have such a love 
love of nature. I feel like nature is one of my best friends in life. I don't know, you know, how to be surviving this world without paying attention to it. And it's always there and it's there for everybody. But if you don't pay attention to it, then... And especially during COVID. I mean, I've been someone who grew up with nature. We used to go camping as kids and, you know, I've always loved nature, but now I live downtown Toronto. I live in the city. And so you kind of forget that link and how much it rejuvenates you. But honestly, during the last six months of COVID, if I hadn't been able to like go out and enjoy nature, I think I would have gone completely bonkers. And and that's a privilege too. It's like, you know, not everybody's families are taking nature trips or going out and camping or doing all of that. And that's why I say you always have the blue sky just to look up at the blue sky. Or even if you live in a city, to pay attention to the trees, you know, to pay attention to the birds in the trees, to get yourself to a park. You know, it's like in the even in the small ways when you can't do big nature outings, even the small ways to be able to pay attention to nature and and have it ground you and, and hold you and keep you. It's a major thing. And it's a it's a gift that it's it's there for us if we pay attention to it. And that's such a good point, especially about the privilege that not all kids have access to that. You graduated from Duke and you went to Harvard Law School. Uh, And then you left after your first year because you never really wanted to be a lawyer. Now, one of the things that I'm amazed by when I speak to writers is how many of them were either lawyers, practicing lawyers, and then they gave it up, or how many of them started studying law and just kind of said, oh, hell no, this isn't for me. Can Uh you tell us a bit more about your career trajectory? Yeah. So um, I grew up and my, my father was a lawyer and he always wanted me to be a lawyer because I was the the best student of my siblings, you know, made the A's and the, you know, so he was like, okay, you. And I was one of those people growing up. I was a people pleaser and it was very hard for me to, in my mind, say no. And a lawyer seemed like, okay, it's a, it's a good achievement, isn't it? It's like when you, when you tell somebody as a kid, I want to be a lawyer, they say, oh, good, good for you. And so that is the path that I followed, you know, and even going to law school before I went to law school, I was like, I don't want You know, but then getting into Harvard, everybody's like, well, you have to go. You know, you just got into Harvard. And when I got there, you know, it really set in that this is my life and I am putting myself in a position. I had debt. I have to take on debt to go there. I'm, I'm putting myself in a position where if I stay, I'm going to have to. And I did the, started doing the calculations. I'm going to have to be a lawyer, I thought, for seven years in order to pay off the debt. And that's living frugally and saving a lot. And a, a lot of people don't do that. You, you live the life of your salary and, you know, but if I live frugally and, you know, I could pay off the debt in seven years, but then you're a lawyer about it, you know? And I decided, no way am I about to give my seven years of my life to something I don't want to do. And so I left. And, you know, a lot of people called me crazy. People <laughs> thought I lost my mind. But, and that is why, you you know, calling my name and all the things we never knew. Major themes that run through both of those novels is just listening to yourself and valuing, you know, how you feel and what you want over other people's opinions, because it is not an easy thing to do, even for adults. There are plenty of adults who are living lives they don't want to live just because of pressure from other people. You know, it, it takes 
real courage to kind of like listen to yourself and, you know, get called crazy or (laughs) listen to yourself and have people like looking at you crazy and, you know, judging you. Nobody wants to be judged, you know, but at the same time, living the life that you want at the end is totally worth it. And so after you left law school, what was the trajectory there until the point when you became a writer? Yeah. So after I left law school, I went and worked in um, marketing in the sports world because um, for in undergrad, again, another connection to basketball, I worked uh, for the National Basketball Association. So then after I got out, after I left law school, again, I went and worked for the Houston Rockets and Comets, which is the local team. Um, for the National Basketball Association. And then after working there for a while, I realized I really needed to like free my mind. (laughs) I was like, I need to get out of this corporate space, this corporate mentality. I was like, New York or LA, where am I going? Where am I going? New York or LA. And I went out to LA and then I went to art school um, and did a visual arts program for like a year. And there I, um, I started a business in LA and I was like, and then I started thinking, okay, this is also expensive and what am I going to do with this? Like, you know, but I started a business, a design business and I was making pillows and all kinds of home accessories. Um, and I was selling them in boutiques and I was going to, you know, the trunk shows and doing that. And I was also doing weddings, like floral design and tablecloth, designing weddings and doing all types, just hustling. Wow. You are, you are just so artistic, like a Renaissance <laughs> woman. <laughs> but I was just trying to make something happen. I was hustling with the things that I learned in my, you know, in design school. And then I ended up going to New York for a little bit and even having a business, a design business with a uh, a friend of mine and then her friend, they had just graduated from the Pratt, a master's program, a design program at, at Pratt. But ultimately, I was just drawn to writing. When I was very young, I loved language. I loved words. And throughout my academic career, I was told to, I was taught to suppress it. You know, when you hand in a political science paper, you know, or when I handed in a political science paper, I would I would get feedback. What is all this flowery language? <laughs> And so I was always criticized for it. And then, too, after I left law school was really the first time in so long I gave myself permission to read for pleasure. Other than that, it was just like me trying to make the best scores and trying to excel. But it's like, oh, here I get to read books that I want to read. I get to read fiction. I really wasn't reading fiction before then. And when I started reading, I just started writing. And it's like I connected to that, the love that I had as a child that I that I was really wasn't able to pursue. And it kind of went not quickly from there, but I, I started writing and then I started taking classes at um, UCLA Extension. I was living in L.A. at the time. So I did that for a while and then I knew I wanted to take it further. So I ended up getting a master's from um, Vermont College. And I wrote Calling My Name in the master's program. And it took me a while to get published. I, you know, came out and I want to say it's been years. It's like you write a book. I try to get it published right after. But the protagonist ranged in age from 12 to 17. And, and for the YA world, that doesn't tip is not typical. They like the characters in the story really to take place in one year or less. You know, they want to be able to put it on a shelf and and say, well, if, if a 16 year old going to pick this up, if it starts off talking about a 12 year old or is it, you know, and so 
it took me a while to um, sell it. And then I just stopped trying, not stopped trying, but I, I, you just put it on the back burner, you know, and start writing. I started writing something else. And this living life, you know, I had, you know, I was married. I got a divorce and I moved three times and I started a real estate business. And then I started writing another book and I was like, wait a second. I really never got that first book published. Let me try harder. And so then I sent it out again. And this time it was like, you know, my first round of submissions, I got an offer from three agents. Wow. That and, is like the Holy Grail. And, <laughs> and, and did you change it a lot between the two or was it purely timing? No, it, it was timing. My fr- the first time when I sent it out, the first round, um, agents did want me to change it and make her one year. They wanted, you know, to maybe use flashbacks. And I tried to do that, but I really didn't like, I didn't like it. I didn't, I didn't like what I did. I didn't like the, I liked my original book. And so when I started sending it out again, I sent out my original book, same book, but this time it was, I don't know. It's like, that's the thing. It's like, that's why you have to keep on sending it out. I don't know if there was a book or books that came out in those, you know, five years that, changed people's perspective. I don't know if it was just a different set of eyes because depending on what eyes are looking at your work, it's going to be perceived different because it's a subjective thing, isn't it? You know, and then after I got an agent, she sold it in a week, one week. Wow. (laughs) Wow. It was like, what? You know, after the first experience, it's like, you know, nothing. Well, not nothing. I got a lot of bites. A lot of agents said, I love your writing, but can you change the structure? Or I love your writing, but, you know, the protagonist is, you know, they, they all have problems with covering her journey from 12 to 17. But it worked out. But it took, you know, keep on pushing and sending out and sending out and sending out because it could still easily be on my computer right now. I, t- I tell people that. It's like it was on my computer for so many years just sitting there. I mean, can you imagine if you hadn't gone back to it? And I love that you didn't change it because I'm this person that, you know, I'm currently out on submission and every bit of critique I get back, I try and change it, try and fix it. And I mean, it's so many different opinions. And like you said, it's so subjective. And sometimes as an author, you lose sight of your own work because I'm like you when you were younger, I'm the people pleaser. And so it's like, oh, you don't like this. I'm going to fix it. You don't like that. I'm going to fix it. And I love that you just stayed true to your vision for the novel and that it paid off just at a different time. I try to fix it, you know, but at the end of the day, it's like you really do have to do what resonates with you. And and that's with all critique. It's like I'm not someone who is like, oh, no, you know, I can't take critique or I can't listen to what other people have to say. I listen and I, I can be very open minded. But at the same time, if something doesn't resonate with you, it doesn't resonate. And you, how do you make that work? <laughs> of course. I mean, you had this vision for the novel and trying to change it was going to change the novel and the story you wanted to tell. And if you can incorporate feedback in a way that you're still able to be true to the piece, then that's great. But if it requires the whole piece to change, then uh, definitely not. And I love the circuitous journey you took to publication because so many young people these days seem to feel like they need to be a writer right at the bat. And if they don't do it in their 20s, then it's not going to happen for them. And I mean, for me, I published my first book when I was 40. And you look at people like Delia Owens, who published her first novel in her late 60s. And so it's never too late to find your way back to writing. And I say find your way back because I feel like all writers 
start off being writers. As children, we love language, we love writing, but then we get told that writing isn't a real occupation, that you need to have a fallback and you need to be more responsible. And so we kind of put that aside. And I love that as writers, we find our way back to that original passion at some point. Yeah, I do think, you know, as children, we all have big imaginations and we all think the world is some huge kind of place and you kind of can do anything but it's like the older you get the smaller the world tends to (laughs) become just because of what everybody is telling you you need to do something practical or realistic you need to do something that makes money as much as I love books or love language I didn't put the two together like oh I'm reading a book by an author therefore I can be an author it just never even occurred to me like this is possible I can do this because the list of things that people talk about and the list of careers that people talk about when you're young is just so limited in all the ways we need to kind of broaden the perspective you know for young people and help them see all the many different ways there are out there of making money and help them translate their own individual passions into ways that can make them money. And it's not always the traditional route. It's not, you know, all kids are not going to grow up and work in corporate America. (laughs) But that is what we train kids for in school. We are training them to go and get a job and sit at a desk. Yeah. And then there comes the unlearning and we find our way back. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. 
Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. So something I have to ask is how important was your MFA in terms of your writing success? If you didn't do the MFA, do you feel like you could have sat down and written the same novel? Was it integral to your success? Do you recommend that people go out and get their MFAs? I'm not going to say I recommend. I think that there are so many different paths and everybody has to do what's best for them. I would say at the time when I went and got my MFA, it was important for me to carve out that time for myself. And, you know, a lot of people, which I'm sure many writers can identify with, if you tell people you're a writer, people don't respect it, you know, unless you have published something, um, unless you have your own deadline. And so it was a way for me in my life to carve out many, many hours to write and for that time to be respected and me to hold the space and say, hey, no, this space is for me and my writing. And not everybody has to do that. And, and other people may do a better job holding that space for themselves. But for me, it was a really great way to hold that space and to learn, you know, the craft of writing. And so I'm happy that I have that. It's like now it's weird because it's so many years later. And when you're writing, you forget the things that you already know and you forget the things that you kind of just like take for granted and you forget what you've learned. It's like every time you write a book now, it just seems impossible. At the beginning, you're like, I don't, how do I write? I don't know how to write. Feels like you're back to square one I swear I always find those first few paragraphs it's like learning to walk all over again it's crazy it's awful yeah (laughs) yeah exactly but it was definitely beneficial for me but I I can't say that it's like oh yes everybody run out and go do it everybody you know has different ways of learning and their lives look a lot different so for those people who can't afford MFAs or who don't have the time for it I feel like something that comes out of an MFA that is hugely useful is the critique. It is having fellow people in the class critiquing your work. It's having your your lecturers or whoever 
critiquing your work and giving you the feedback, which allows you to go back and draft and polish based on that. So I feel like for people who MFA it isn't an option for them, then certainly writing groups or a mentor who yeah. are able to critique their work and give them that feedback is, is kind of integral. Or even the deadline, like I was in a low residency program. With a low residency program, you work with a single advisor every semester and you are sending your work, you know, you send packets every month to the advisor and you do get feedback. And so that feedback is very good to receive from somebody. But I think more important was just having a deadline. On the first of the month, your packet is due and in that packet, you need pages. And so I feel like I've talked, I can't remember who and I, but I feel like I've talked to somebody, they pay a deadline person. They pay somebody to hold them accountable. For this. Listen, I mean, I'm sure everybody doesn't even have to pay someone. Just find the bossiest person in your life. And- right, right. And- and get them to crack the whip, man. Pick someone who you're scared of. And if you don't send them those pages, they're going to yell at you. It's due now. Like, and to have that pressure and to feel that pressure, right? Because we all, when the pressure's on, it's like you do what it takes to get it done. But when the pressure's off, you may be like, oh, I, didn't, I'm not, I didn't do it. And, you know, it's it's fine. And I feel like that inner critic, when you don't have a deadline, it's so easy for that inner critic to look at the pages you've done and go, oh, these are all awful. They're not good enough. And so you will spend another three months polishing a whole bunch of paragraphs that may actually never see the light of day. I'm sure you've had the experience where you've spent days on something and an editor's just like, nope, and they cut it. And you were like, oh my God, I just wasted a lot of time. So, you know, I feel like uh, when you have that deadline, you don't sit and rework everything because you just don't have the luxury of the time for that. And sometimes that's actually a very good thing. So moving on to YA as a genre, how different is it to other genres besides the fact that your target audience is young adults, besides the fact that your themes should be related to things that young people care about? Is the writing itself different. Like I've read articles in which I've been told that when you write YA, your sentences need to be so much shorter and to the point and things like that. Have have you found it to be a very different writing style or not necessarily? Yeah, I would say that is totally different for every writer as well. My style is a, is a bit different. Um, and my first book, Calling My Name, it could have gone adult as well. My agent decided to submitted to the YA market first and um, the protagonist is young so that's why it could appeal to young people but it could have also appealed to adults especially with the form with it being vignettes and short stories and the language too I personally don't make my sentences any different you know for a way I think the the most important thing for the young adult market when I'm writing now because I am now writing consciously YA my last book was a very conscious because I knew it was going to be for the young adult market the book I'm working on now is too and it's the voice you want to get down a believable young voice and that's it what I'm working on now I'm I'm writing in close third and the voice is still very important because I still I want a teenager to pick up the book 
and feel the the person who is telling the story. I want them to be able to relate to the person telling the story as much as they relate to the character, because how the story is told and what language you use to tell it, it matters. You know, it's like, that's the first thing you pick up. It, it, it matters in, in adult fiction too, by the way, the most important thing. I think the most important thing with fiction, period, is, is voice. voice. Yeah, That's it. It's like, once you get that down, it's like smooth sailing. It's like <laughs> Everything else falls into place. Everything else that. falls into place, yeah. But um, in terms of your third person, like you, you're speaking about your next project, is this your voice as author, as narrator, or is it another character as narrator? No, I'm struggling with it. It started as more of my voice. And it's so funny because you just mentioned that period of time where you like, you look at all your pages and you're like, this is trash. You know, (laughs) and so I just had one of those moments um, literally yesterday because I've I've started writing it more in my voice, you know, maybe a little bit, you know, younger or using, you know, different language, but more or less it was it was my voice in a close third. And even though I like it, I like it. I struggle with it because, you know, I looked at it yesterday and I was like, I don't know, like you know, is it too me? Is it too much of me and not of somebody else should? And so now I'm thinking of starting to write instead of going, I'm not going to go back and try to rework those pages and trash those pages. I'm going to start writing a totally different section of the book in a different voice. And I'm going to see how it goes. And so I don't want, because the inner critic is a woo, an inner critic kid. <laughs> and, and that'll give you some emotional distance from it. So you can come back to those early pages and you can compare them to the later pages and you can exactly. go, okay, which voice, which, which voice was better? Which one is better? Because if, at, at first when I, you know, was writing it, when I was writing it and soon after I was writing it, I loved it. I was like, oh, this is amazing. I feel like I told my agent that too. I was like, oh, this is amazing. It's going so well. (laughs) And then, you know, a month later, it's like, oh, this is trash. And it's not trash, but it's like, this is not working. You know, it's like you tell yourself, you tell yourself these things. Um, But no, I'm just going to try it. Try it a little bit different and see what works, you know, and see what's more natural and see what, what flows more. Um, because I, I will say that the beginning, even though it's in my voice, I am also doing it third person present instead of third person past. And that may change too. third person past would seem more natural, but third person present it, it's not feeling as natural. So I'm kind of, I'm working through things still. Yeah. Even though I'm kind of, I, I'm in it, but I, I still haven't made solid decisions. Um, I keep wavering on certain things. So we'll see. And I, I like this part of the process because I feel like your options are wide open. You know, when you haven't committed to first or third person, when you haven't committed to present or past, there's so many options. And I find that with each decision you make, it like, it kind of closes doors and it hems you in. And so you start to be really shepherded almost in a certain way. So yeah, this, this 
process, uh, the beginning parts is really great. In terms of when you're writing, this is a twofold question. One, do you have young adults who read your work as you're going along to see if it appeals to them? And two, do you have young adults in your life who you speak to, to kind of understand what it is that teenagers care about these days? Or are you just one of these people that you just kind of are tapped into that and you know it? Yeah, I don't have any teenagers, young teenagers, although I should enlist um, my nieces for this. I don't let them read it ahead of time, but I am in conversation with them a lot and I see them a lot. And so they definitely inspire me and I pay attention to everything they do and say. That makes sense to me because I've spoken to some YA authors who they don't read the genre. I mean, I'm assuming you read YA fictional, don't you? I do. You know, you have to in a way just to, you're in conversation with people all the time. You want to, when I'm in conversation with people, you I want to have read their books, you know, and so, um, and so, yeah, I do read YA just to keep up with it and to be able to talk about it. But yeah, I, I'll chat to some people who go, oh, I'm writing YA, but they don't read YA. They don't have any young people in their life. And it always seems to me a weird genre to pick. You definitely need to know young people and you want to care about them, right? It's like, you want to care, you know, what story you're trying to tell them and for what reason and all of that. Finishing off, something that I've noticed is that writers of color face a lot of barriers and obstacles to entry when it comes to publishing. Uh, and this is something that white authors don't face. We spoke briefly earlier about privilege. And I've heard horror stories where writers of color have submitted a manuscript to an agent and they've been told, oh, this is great, but could the character be white instead of whatever? And when I hear that, I just cringe and I want to die because I just can't believe that this is where we at now. And, you know, I feel like lately publishers are becoming aware of how white publishing is and they're taking steps to hire editors of color, people in marketing who are people of color and in public relations, etc., etc. Do you have advice for writers of color who are kind of struggling to break their way into such a white industry? Yeah. Oh, advice. I don't know about advice. I mean, here's what I can say. I, I have no horror stories about entry, but with that being said, when the people who are buying manuscripts are predominantly white and you are writing characters, black characters, and you are, and and they are coming from a black culture, there are going to be things that the people who are reading the manuscripts don't understand. There are going to be bits of culture they they just don't get. (laughs) And obviously that can be a barrier because if you don't understand it and you don't get it, you're not going to connect to it, right? And so while somebody is saying, I'm not connecting to these characters, you might not be connecting to the characters because you're not connected to the culture, right? And so I was lucky enough, you know, the editor I found eventually, you know, really connected to Taja's journey and she connected to the spiritual side and she connected to the language and connected to my writing style. Um, But of, of course you have all the, you have these barriers of entry because as we spoke of before, this is subjective. Writing, it's not like, what books What books do you pick up? What books do you like to read? It's like, a lot of times people will pick up and like to read 
you know, about characters like them. So it's very good that the industry is having a moment where they are recognizing their own bias and they are recognizing, hey, you know, maybe I need to be more open minded or, you know, recognizing the way they see books and the way they see characters are it's it's of course impacted by who you are <laughs> and your background, you know. And it's important that publishers have marketing people in place trying to reach the bl- black market or you know black readers where they are is is maybe different from you know where you reach white readers and where they are. And not to say, and, and I will put this out here too, it's like books featuring black characters are not only for black people. Like we need to get away from that. It's like, just because my book has a black character on the cover, it it still can be for everybody and it should be marketed to everybody and for everybody. But of course you want to reach those black readers, but not exclusively. It should not be, a lot of times books with black characters are marketed as black books when it should be books for everybody. And I hope this is, um, I think, I hope it's something that marketing professionals are more aware of going forward. I certainly hope also that in the past, I think, you know, it's not even in just in book publishing, you know, I think it's in the entertainment industry in general, Black Pain has sold more. And even now, if you look at all the books that money is thrown behind, a lot of them are about race. And, you know, and I understand that white people in the industry you, you look at these books and you want to, you feel good about pushing these books and pushing this conversation about race. And we need to have conversations about race. I mean, look at, look at the moment we're in. We have a president who cannot condemn or won't condemn white supremacy. Just as important as pushing the conversation about race, it is equally important to have books about all types of Black people doing all types of things that are not centered on race. Because you are, when you only value, you know, our struggles with race and the race problem, you're not valuing all of our humanity and you're not showing and celebrating our full humanity. And that's another huge problem I see just not only in the book industry, but at large, you know, we have to be out here celebrating all types of Black stories. Ah, Leora, we've come to the end of our time together. Thank you so much for this discussion. It's been so wonderful chatting with you. And here's a sneak preview of next week's episode. Please join me in welcoming Cecilia Lira. I love to quote Anne Patchett on this. So she wrote a great essay called The Getaway Car, and I'm going to quote from that. Basically, she said, if a person of any age to pick up the cello for the first time and said, I'll be playing in Carnegie Hall next month, you would pity their delusion. Yet beginning fiction writers all across the country polish up their best efforts and send them off to the New Yorker. That's her quote. And, you know, it's true. It might seem weird to to compare a cello um, to writing because you think, well, I'm literate. I can write a sentence. But knowing how to write being literate is not the same as knowing how to tell a story. These are entirely different skills. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. 
great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. 
they will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format, so if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.